0: Um, If you can turn to Ezekiel 37 from verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O Sovereign Lord, you alone know? Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath into you and will, you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you of skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, and there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and I breathed into them entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone, we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord.
1: Thanks for that. When I'm thinking about evangelism, I've never yet met a person who is as hard to evangelize and as resistant to the gospel as my own mother. She is the toughest nut to crack I've ever seen. She grew up dirt poor. She, um, her father was a paraplegic. He was a sufferer from polio in the early part of last century, which meant that he was a cripple. But because he refused charity, my mum grew up in a two-bedroom house, tiny little housing commission, council house, as one of six. The four children in the one bedroom, the parents uh, in the other bedroom. And poverty robbed my mother of the two great opportunities she had for greatness. The first one was, right the way through school... My mum was the smartest kid in her class. She still has on a little desk at home a medallion for being the ducks of Villawood Primary School in 1961. She was the smartest kid in her school. And she was passionate about being a vet. My middle name is James, named after James Harriet, the vet, because that's what she wanted and I broke her heart when I got into vet and didn't do it. Not a happy conversation, that one. But in those days, you see, being a vet... And going to university just wasn't an option for poor people. My mum left school at the end of year eight and she became a telephone cleaner. That's what she could do. Two years later, I think it was the next year, she won a state swimming um, uh, title. She won it in a national record. I think it was in the 200 metres freestyle. And she qualified to go to the nationals to qualify for the 1964 Olympics. But she was too poor to afford the trip. Her parents couldn't afford to let her go. And she was the fastest swimmer in Australia over the distance. And so my mum has learned the gospel of self-sufficiency. She's learned that if she's going to achieve anything in life, she has to do it herself. And so she's built her life and she has always said to me, I don't need your God. You might need him, you might need a crutch, but I do not need your God. And I have never met a tougher nut to crack. The day I, came, I became a Christian, I came home and I, she was washing the dishes. I still remember, she was standing in the sink. I walked in and I said, Mum, I've just become a Christian. And she rounded on me. It was amazing, the vehemence. She said, well, do not ram your religion down my throat. And it was anger in her eyes. And 25 years has not softened her an ounce evangelizing my mother is like plowing through concrete it's just hard work and yet really my guess is a lot of you could tell exactly the same story if you didn't grow up in a Christian home because that's just evangelism in Australia isn't it I can't think of many more western countries where preaching the gospel is harder than it is here Because we've got so much money we've got so much leisure we've got so little respect for authority as a country we're so secular we're so cynical because of what we've seen christians do that it's hard to even break the surface with most australians and it happens that you live in one of the tougher cities in australia i looked at the the kind of figures for people who are going to church and the kind of christian figures and despite being called the city of churches adelaide is not a very christian city at all it's a tough place to preach the gospel which means that what happens for a lot of ministers is, over the course of your ministry career, you just slowly lose heart for evangelism. You start off and you're all keen and you're excited and you, do, you run missions and kids clubs and you, you knock doors and you do marriage prep with anyone and you pray and you, and you see so little fruit evangelistically that you just run out of evangelistic steam. But you don't want to admit that you run out of evangelism. And so what you do is you, you quietly stop talking about it and you concentrate on your flock. You love your flock. You concentrate on maturing them and pouring your life into them and, and growing them. And what you hope for is one or two converts a year. One or two people each year that are going to lighten your life a little bit by becoming Christians. That's, that's your average Australian church ministry nowadays. Not much evangelistic growth. But what I want us to grapple with this morning is resurrection optimism. The resurrection makes us massively optimistic about evangelism and massively optimistic about people's lives being transformed. Transformed. And it shapes the way we do ministry. But just like I said yesterday, we need to start in the Old Testament. So start with the passage that we've just read. God takes Ezekiel to a valley. And in verse 1, it's a valley of dry bones. And you can see there in verse 1, he leads Ezekiel back and forth. And I saw a great many bones in the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And then God asks Ezekiel a frankly weird question. Look in verse 3. He asked me, son of man... Can these bones live? That's kind of a dumb question, isn't it? I mean, what chance would you have given that dry, dusty, dead bones would ever come to life again? It's a stupid question. Until you realize that God is not uncertain. It's not a case of, look, I don't know, Ezekiel, they look kind of dead to me, but what's your prognosis? God's asking a rhetorical question. He's saying, look, Ezekiel, they're dead. There's no hope for any of these people yet, is there? They're, they're bones, they're dust. Can you see that, Ezekiel? So who are they? Well, look down in verse 11. They're Israel. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up, our hope's gone, we're cut off. These bones are Israel. Which gives us a bit of a problem. Because at this point, Israel aren't dead physically. They're in exile, but they are dead spiritually, as a nation. In, in verse 11, they say, our hope is gone. We're cut off. They're cut off from God. This what we're seeing here is the spiritual death of Israel because of their rebellion against God. And it's interesting because when you move to the New Testament, Paul picks up the same kind of image, doesn't he? He says to non-Jews, people like you and I, Gentiles... As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. See, this isn't one of those ideas that's confined to the nation of Israel. This is actually true of all humanity. Outside of that valley that God takes Ezekiel to, the whole of humanity, the whole of the earth is filled with decaying, dead, dry, dusty corpses. And in in Ephesians 2, Paul explores what our death actually looks like he puts flesh on it if you like in three ways firstly in verse 1 he says we are dead in our transgressions and sins or because of our transgressions and sins now you probably know transgression is just crossing a line you know where you see the sign that says keep off the grass or the sign that says no pedestrian access those those signs draw a line in the sand don't they What the the line says is, this far, but you can't go any further. And that's what God's laws do. So no idolatry, or no lying, or no stealing. They're lines that we mustn't cross. And when we cross them, that's transgression. And the penalty for that transgression is death. That's what we've done. We're dead. But you know that sin's more than that, don't you? Sin is more than just our actions. Because in verse 3, Paul says... You can see it up on the screen. Paul says we gratify the cravings of our sinful nature following its desires and thoughts. Sin's more than just crossing a line. Sin's more than just being disobedient. It's actually a nature within human beings. It's a bent. It's a compulsion. That when God puts a line in front of me... I want to cross it. It's funny, people like to think of themselves as neutral, don't they? Or even good. If you give me two choices, put two choices in front of me, I, we like to think of ourselves, human beings like to think of ourselves, as I will ra- rationally weigh up the options and, and, and I will make my choice. And if I'm going to have a bent in any direction, it's I'm a good person. As long as I follow my heart, I'll do good things. But Paul says, what a load of garbage. <laughs> We're not good. We're not even neutral. We have a sinful nature. This is something that we've inherited from Adam and Eve. We're like a shopping trolley that always veers off in the wrong direction. If God is over there, our shopping trolley is always heading in the opposite direction. And all God's laws do is just give me the opportunity. It's funny, a few years back, Emma and I were sitting at a set of traffic lights and I... And I just got this, a, a taste again of that, that sinful nature urge. Because we were driving there, and we, were, we were sitting there with this set of traffic lights, and we we're talking away. And I, was, I looked through Emma's window at the bus, and there was a sign, a sticker on the bus window that said, You'll never believe this. Do not enter bus by driver's window. Have you seen that sticker? It's extraordinary. I don't know about you, in a million years, I never would have dreamt of going through the window to get on the bus if the door is so much more comfortable and convenient. But as soon as I saw that sticker, you know what came into my mind? I thought, I want to have a crack at that. (laughs) (laughs) That guy looks kind of fat. I reckon I can get in and out before he gets me. (laughs) The same thing happened going up the Empire State Building. I went up the Empire State Building a few years ago. Two of the most majestic experiences of my life. The first one was, just as the doors of the lift closes, and this is one of the tallest buildings in the world, just as the doors of the lift closed, I realised I had to break wind. <laughs> That's a moment in life, isn't it? All of these polite Americans going... The second one was, standing on the, on the top of the Empire State Building, looking out, beautiful skyline, and I happened to walk around the corner and there was a sign that said... Do not spit off the Empire State Building. <laughs> it hadn't occurred to me before. But as soon as I did, great gobbets of saliva started to form in my. I was drooling. And, it, and I just had to do it. Do you know the real letdown? It just blows back into your face. It's just, <laughs> it's, I, my dream was that it would form an, a solid block of ice on the way down and crash into a cab, but it just blows back into your face. It's our bent. If you put a line in front of me as a human being, I'll cross it. And even as Christians, we have the residual of that. Especially if it's God's line we're going to want to cross it. Because you see, it's not just me here. It's God's great enemy who is urging me on. So look in Ephesians 2 verse 1 again on the screen. But as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world... And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. Paul says we don't just follow our own sinful desires. It's not just about making decisions. Satan is at work in us. He's, it's not that he possesses us. It's that he's at work in us as we follow his lies. You know the lie. God doesn't really love you. you know. That's not why he's telling you not to have sex before marriage. That's because he hates to see you happy. That's why God's giving you this. He's holding out on you. And look, if you guys just slept together, your relationship would be so much closer. You're virtually married already. You love each other. And why would you go through all of this self-denial? God is the only one who can't see that. And he just lures us forward. And because of Satan's whispering, and because of a natural bent, we cross the line. And Paul says this is the great mass of humanity. This is what it is to be a human being. We are dead. I think dead because humans as, as a race, we're cut off from the influence of God in our lives. He is the life giver, and we're also dead because of judgment. We're dead because death is the punishment for sin. So at the end of verse 3 he says, we are by nature objects of wrath. And so is it any wonder that evangelism is like plowing concrete? Is it any wonder my mum is such a tough nut to crack? Because I'm, I'm not just up against her, I'm up against Satan and I'm up against her whole bent and I'm up against all the rules that she wants to break. Is it any wonder ministers give up on evangelism? The odds are just so stacked against us. Is it any wonder that the world fails so miserably when it comes to trying to change people? See, what's the world's answer to changing people? When when people are doing the wrong thing, the world has four tools for, for the way it changes people. Firstly, there's laws, and then there's education... And then there's habits, and then there's environment. So drink driving and speeding, they're a real problem, aren't they? They're a problem in the place that I live, I'm sure they're a problem here. How do we fix it? Well, the world's answer is, you create tougher laws. So a few years back in Newcastle, um, a truck driver, a man named David Lawler, was sentenced to 10 years and 8 months in jail, because he caused a 35-car pile-up on a freeway outside of Newcastle. At the time, his truck was defective, it had faulty brakes, it had bald tyres, it was unregistered and uninsured and he was going down into a steep gorge, if you know it, he was going down into the Mooney Mooney Gorge and his brakes failed and he slammed into the back of a little Hyundai XL and he pushed the woman in it for 50 metres before her car exploded and incinerated her. And when the judge sentenced him, he said this was a disaster waiting to happen. Mr. Lawler knowingly drove a truck with defective brakes and tyres and with an 18-tonne payload. His conduct showed a complete disregard for the people he knew to be travelling on the road. And despite the remorse that quite genuinely flows, there must still be imposed a sentence that not only deters this offender, but any other that blatantly risks the safety of others on the road. Huge story in you. You know, I've I've checked the amount of speeding tickets and the amount of drink driving since that event hasn't dropped at all. The law couldn't have been more fierce on that guy. It had no effect at deterring other people. People still drive recklessly all the time. Because the thing about a law is, how can a law change my heart? How can a law argue and refute Satan? It can't. It's just not powerful enough. Which is why governments move to the other great tool, education. What we need to do is educate our teenagers against the dangers of of drugs and and alcohol. We need to educate people about the dangers of speeding and drink driving. And we've all seen that ad where the ute goes around the corner and slams straight into the family car. we, We know what speeding does. The ads couldn't be any more graphic. And yet every single holiday season the police come out and say the message doesn't seem to be getting through because the message isn't powerful enough. And so what we do is we turn to creating good habits that if, if you want to get in control of your life, you need to have this kind of diary or you need to listen to these kinds of um, self-help talks, read this kind of book, you need a much better weekly planner and, and if that doesn't work, what you need to do is change your environment so that if your children are doing well at this school, what you've got to do is take them out and put them in another school. Laws, education... Habits and environment, are, it's how our society changes behavior, but it doesn't change anything. Because none of them take seriously enough the problem of sin. That we're dead. You can't reform dead people. That's what God is saying to, to Ezekiel here. Look Ezekiel, they're dead. You can't change the nature of dead people with laws, with education, with habits. It's like plowing concrete. What we need is something stronger than that. What we need is, we need people to be, to be born again. We need people to have a new life. And that's what God promises in Ezekiel 37. So look in verse 3. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he said to me, prophesy to these bones. And say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones, I'll make breath enter you and you'll come to life. I'll attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I'll put breath in you and you'll come to life. And then you'll know that I'm the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was still no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me and breath ended them and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. What an awesome picture, isn't it? God promises to resurrect Israel. So Ezekiel prophesies in verse 7, there's a rattling sound and all the bones come together and everything attaches and it's so hard not to sing the song, isn't it? It's so hard not to give. Because they're hearing the word of the Lord. But they're not alive yet. Are they? Have you noticed that? We'll get to that in a minute. What we're seeing here is more than a resurrection actually. What we're seeing here is a complete recreation of Israel. See there are a bunch of things in this passage that remind us of Genesis and of the first time God created that show us that God's not just waking Israel up he's recreating them so there's the word of the Lord which is just like in Genesis chapter 1 isn't it there's the breath and there's also the spirit and there's even two stages so like I said did you notice that Ezekiel joined uh, the everything gets joined together but in verse 8 there's no life in them there's no breath in them That's because in Genesis 2, the Lord forms the man out of the dust of the ground and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. It's a two-stage thing in Genesis 2, and it's the same in Ezekiel 37. God builds the body and then he puts breath into it. And it's so that we'll know that God's not just making adjustments to Israel here. He's not just reforming them or rehabilitating them. He's recreating them from the ground up. They are a new created work. Israel are raised up as new human beings, in fact, as spiritual human beings. Because look how God interprets the vision in verse 12. Look in verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, O my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I'll bring you back to the land of Israel. And then you, my people, will know that I'm the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you. And you'll live I'll settle you in your own land, and then you'll know that I, the Lord, have spoken. I've done it, declares the Lord. That's what this vision is really about. Verse 14, it's about the Holy Spirit. It's about the Spirit coming and raising them up as new human beings. They're not just raised for a second shot at serving God. They're raised as new creations, as different people. That's the great promise that God makes here in Ezekiel 37. And like every great promise, it comes true in Jesus. Jesus brings that new age that Ezekiel promised. So come with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We started looking at Ephesians 2 earlier. Ephesians chapter 2, so we're finished in Ezekiel 37. Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now, notice how Paul is talking there in the past tense. Because, from his point of view, those things are no longer true of us. Because, look in verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. See what he says? He says, We the the dry bones... We've been raised up, even though, he says, even though we were dead in our transgressions and sins, even though we we had a sinful nature, and even though we were objects of wrath. In verse 5, God has made us alive, alive with Christ. Because Jesus, in Paul's mind, is the first one to be raised. Jesus was dead and has been made alive too. But Jesus wasn't dead in transgressions and sins. He was dead because of transgressions and sins. He was dead because of our transgressions and sins. He was dead because of our sinful nature. He was dead because of all of the lines that we'd crossed. The no idolatry, the no adultery, the no stealing. He was dead because of all the sins that we really wanted to commit but never got around to in our sinful nature. And God raised him from the dead. Just flip back a few verses to Ephesians 1 verse 20 and you'll see Jesus' resurrection. Ephesians 1 verse 20. God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given not only in the present age but also in the one to come and god placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way see god has now raised jesus from the dead to the highest place in all of the universe which we're going to look at tomorrow because he died for our transgressions And Paul says the great news is, Jesus isn't the only one. No, 2 verse 4, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy has raised us too. Even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, God has raised us too. In fact, look down in verse 10. Just like Israel, we are a new creation. Just like Israel... We have been recreated in Christ Jesus. You see, we are the fulfillment of Ezekiel 37. We are those dry bones that have been knitted together again, that flesh has covered and that the Spirit has entered into us. And in heaven, what is now a spiritual new creation in heaven will be physical. Whereas it's now that we have been raised again spiritually in heaven, that will be a physical resurrection But you know what this means? What what this means is resurrection ministry is optimistic ministry. See, we believe in new life. We believe in people coming back from the dead. And we believe that people really can change. Not change themselves, but we believe that God changes people. Have a look in 2 verse 10. For we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying it's possible for Christians to be good. He's saying we're no longer bones. We're no longer dead. We're no longer slaves of sin. Instead, we're recreated and God has prepared good works for us to walk in. There's what nothing else can do, what no amount of laws and education and habits and environment, what all of those things fail miserably at, God achieves by the work of His Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. And look, it is so crucial that we get this. It's so crucial that we grasp it. How do you see yourself? Now, as a Christian, how do you see yourself? See, I've become pretty convinced that most Christians... See themselves as essentially a bad person that God occasionally does good through. Most, most of us see ourselves as essentially as corpses that God occasionally blows wind into and we do something good and then we flop back to being a corpse, dead, bad, evil. That is a lot of, a lot of Christians essentially have a very negative view of themselves when it comes to their capacity to obey God. We see the dry bones of Ezekiel 37 and we see their spiritual deadness and we go, that's me. And you know, a lot of preachers encourage it. They encourage Christians to see themselves negatively by doing what I call deficit preaching. Deficit preaching is where the preacher is sitting in his study and he's reading his way through the passage and he reaches application time for writing the talk. And he and the application is well, what's my church doing wrong in this passage? Because I'm going to tell them that's what they're doing wrong. And so week in, week out, the Christians hear everything that is wrong with them. Every way that they're failing God and they read Ezekiel 37 and they say, that's me. But Paul says, no, that was you. (laughs) Ephesians 2 verse 1, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. But the Christian present is verse 10. God has made you a new person, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's what we are now. We're God's workmanship. We're new creations. Friends, don't see yourself as some spiritual corpse that just occasionally does something good. No, see yourself as somebody who by the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, by the love of the Father, you have been raised up as a new person. Created by God to do good works. That is, you have a lifetime of good works ahead of you. A lifetime of joy in the service of God. And yes, you will still sin. I'm not saying we're perfect. Please don't hear me as preaching some kind of stupid perfectionism. But don't buy the lie that you are dead. Yes, we will still sin. But we are deeply, deeply optimistic about change. So keep trusting in Jesus who raises the dead. one One of the greatest pleasures you can ever have as a minister of the gospel, as a gospel preacher, is to see God change people. One of the guys I love most in our church... This guy named Hobbo, John, John Hobbins. John has screwed up his life. He's made just about every mistake it's possible to make. He's been addicted to drugs, addicted to alcohol. He's done all sorts of stupid and terrible things. And yet over the last five years, we've watched God do some of the most amazing things in him as he's repaired a marriage and gone back and repaired a relationship with the previous wife as well. And as he's grappled with his alcoholism and grappled with drug addiction and none of it's been easy but he is a different guy and the great privilege that I've had is to walk through it with him and to watch God who raises the dead show John the good works that he has prepared for him to walk in you can't get a better job than that I get paid to do that it's brilliant that's why it should you end up in ministry and should you end up a bible teacher don't become a deficit preacher don't be the kind of bully who spends their lives showing everyone where they're wrong and always prescribing the new list of rules preach the wonderful truth of the gospel preach the wonderful truth that jesus has died to pay for our death and that his great mercy to us is to raise us up as new creations and that God has good works for us to walk in keep getting your people to dwell on the gospel and its outcomes and to dwell on what God has done instead of what they haven't done let me give you a different model for doing application since I've told you what you shouldn't do Let's think about how you can do it. This isn't the only way to do application, but this is one that I'm toying with at the minute and I'm trying to be practical as a preacher. So let's have a crack at it. I think that good application, as I'm thinking about it at the minute, can possibly move people through four stages. The first one is, I'm trying to figure out how can I show people how the gospel changes their minds. All Christian change starts in the mind because it starts with God's Word and so I want to change the way people think about God and the way they think about the world and the way they think about sin and the way they think about themselves and I want them to know that they're forgiven and to understand what forgiveness means and to understand what Jesus' death means. I want them to wrap all of their heads around that and as evangelicals, as Bible teachers, we tend to be pretty good at this stage. But you know, then. One of the things I'm trying to do now is to show people that this actually changes more than our head, it changes our heart. Not our emotion, our convictions, our passions, what I love and what I hate and what I admire and what I despise. That is, if Jesus died for sin, I don't just recognize that it's sin, I hate it for its sinfulness. If If Jesus speaks the truth, I don't just affirm it, I proclaim it. I rejoice in it. I love it. If Jesus tells me I'm born again, I don't just accept it. I embrace it. I worship. If Jesus tells me that lying is wrong, I now hate lies. It's more than what I believe. It's what I love and it's what I hate. From people's minds to their hearts. And then to show people that it actually begins to affect our habits. If all of this is true, then I will pray, then I, that I will discipline my eyes, I will read the Bible, I will memorize Scripture, I will make church a priority, that there is a habit in Christian lives. And again, I think this is the thing, I think we're pretty good at one and three. We're good at saying, this is what you should believe, and then this is what your habit should be. We're not so good at saying, this is what we love and this is what we hate. And one of the things I've realized I'm just rubbish at is showing people what to do. We're, uh, one of the guys in our church came to me and he said Greg you're good at telling us what to do you're just rubbish at showing us how to do it so how many times have you sat there in a sermon and someone like me has said you've got to read your bible every day how many times has that person picked up their bible and said let me show you what I'm going to do tomorrow morning and opened the passage and said you know from this verse I think I'm going to be writing this down How many times have we been told that we need to confess our sins to God but how many times has someone actually said this is what you might want to say to God? Here are some words that you can use. Dear God, I admit that I did this and I thank you for Jesus who died on my behalf and I thank you that I can be certain of that forgiveness and I promise you that I'm going to keep trying and I'm repenting of this and I'm going to turn back to you. That is loads of abrogation just bashes away at point three. Give people habits. But what we need to do is start at people's minds and changing their minds. Change what they love and what they hate and what they live for and what they will reject and walk away from them. They're not even going to care about anymore and what's going to get their guts. And then show them what that can habitually look like and then how that's actually going to do it and then pray optimistically for change. That's something I'm trying to think about at the moment. But we're not just optimistic about change. We believe in conversion. We believe in evangelism. Yep, people are dead in their transgressions and sins. My mother is as hard as granite. But if God has chosen her, when the Spirit works in her, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, she will come. God will raise her from the dead. We know that we live in the time that Jesus has poured out His Spirit. We're going to look at it in Acts 2 tomorrow morning. We know that in Colossians 1, the gospel is now bearing fruit in all the world. And it doesn't mean that suffering doesn't exist. Of course we're going to suffer. We saw that yesterday. But it means we're not pessimists. We don't look at Adelaide and think there is just a paved road of concrete. We look at Adelaide and we say there is a million souls there just waiting to be woken up. And we have the Spirit. And we have the gospel. And we have a God who raises people from the dead. And so I am the supreme optimist when it comes to evangelism. Give me the person to talk to and I will. So I want you to make a determined decision. Should you go into ministry, throw yourself into your first work of being an evangelist. Don't content yourself with just shepherding the flock. Don't content yourself with just fattening up Christians. Raise the dead. Go and find the dead and raise them. Again, let's get practical. What kind of ministry does that build? If you're going to be an absolute flat-out evangelist because you know that God raises the dead, what could that look like? Let me give you five very quick things. Firstly, devote your time to it deliberately. That is, most ministers that I talk to evangelism fits around the edges of their week. That is, if I get a chance this week, I'll do a little bit of door knocking or I'll, I'll, go and I'll make a few phone calls when I've got an hour and it never happens. You'd be amazed the number of people in full-time ministry that evangelism is something that happens maybe three times a year. Because if it's on the edges of my week, it's on the edges of my priorities. No, mission needs to be in the heart of my week. Every week, Wednesday 1 o'clock, Thursday 1 o'clock, I have a date. The date is with the campus of the University of Newcastle, and I'm there, and I'm talking to non-Christians. That's not my only evangelism, but it gets me out, and it gets me among people, and I'm inviting those people to come along. It's got to take a chunk of our diary. We diarize sermon prep. We diarise Bible study prep, because we think it's important. So we need to diarise evangelism. Which means, part, the second thing, we need to devote money to it. <laughs> Whenever people say something is important to their church, my immediate question is, show me the line on the budget where you're spending money on this. Because we spend money on the things we think are important. It costs money to free up a gospel worker to evangelize instead of doing admin. (laughs) And the bigger your church gets, it costs money to hire people to do only the work of evangelism. This year in our church, we're going to spend something close to $200,000 just on evangelizing Newcastle. Just on people who do mission. So a little bit of that, about $10,000-$15,000, is going to go to events and missions. But all of the rest of it is going to go into three full-time people who do nothing but evangelize and equip our people to do it. Their only job is evangelism because it costs money to do it. The third thing, make, a, make evangelism something you do every week, all of the time, not just some of the time. So most churches have mission weeks here and there. And evangelistic services, where we get people to invite people to a couple of times a year. And the rest of the time, evangelism isn't actually something that we do formally. Now for a bunch of reasons, I think that that's not the way to go. One, because it means we end up shouting at people. We had this evangelistic event that we pour all of our hopes and dreams into, and we kinda try to move someone from, hi, how you going, welcome, to do you want to become a Christian in one night? Which isn't very sensitive, is it? It's not what they're ready for, it's not what they want. What they really want is their questions answered in an ongoing conversation with them. But two, when you move to that event evangelism, what you're saying is evangelism, evangelism is only something we do some of the time. We teach the Bible to Christians all the time. We teach the Bible to Christians every week. We do Bible study every week. Heck, we even have supper every week. But we evangelize twice a year. What we're saying is supper is 26 more times important. Than evangelism. Now, evangelism becomes part of your DNA when most weeks, if not every week, there is something your church is doing. So for us, a few years back, we made the decision to move away from event-based evangelism, is where we're on about. We accidentally, more than anything, developed a course that we've called life. It's kind of a five-week dinner Bible talk discussion thing. It's kind of like alpha, but with our own content. This year, we have run that five-week course out 15 times in our church. Any opportunity we get to run it out, we will. We have a kids' club Friday afternoon. We run life for the parents who stick around. We have a morning, Thursday morning ladies' Bible study. We attach life to it. If you stand still long enough, we'll invite you into one of these lives or bring it to you. We want to reach the point where life is running 50 weeks a year. That there's always the one that people will invite people to. It means three things. It means that we've taught our church that evangelism isn't something you do some of the time. It's something that we're on about all the time. This is that important to us. It also shows that we reckon God raises people from the dead. Because we're doing this every single week and running it every single week. We're showing people that we think God's going to raise people from the dead every single week. God's got his elect. So have a crack at it. God will crack the hard nuts. I'm so optimistic I'll do it every chance I can get. And thirdly, it means that Christians begin to trust what we do. Have you had the experience where you invite your friend along to church and the speaker is kind of droned on forever? Maybe there's an experience for you today. The speaker is droned on forever and you kind of lose the will to live about 30 minutes in and you think, I am never inviting anyone to church ever again. I'm just going to kill myself at the end of the meeting. And the non-Christian is thinking worse things. If you build something really good over years, you start with the best you can do and then you just make it better and better and better because you run it again and again and again and you hone it and hone it and hone it. People will trust it and they'll bring their friends. We've just had a live series that ended two weeks ago for our uni church. We had somewhere between 40 and 50 non-Christians there every single week for five weeks. Eleven people prayed the prayer on the second last night. I was stoked. I was sitting in an elders meeting, actually, we were working through budget and how far behind budget we are and someone walked in, made the budget seem like nothing. (laughs) Because our people trust it. Because we do it all the time. And you might be thinking, well, how do you know when you've got enough people to run this? Because I don't know if we've got enough people to run it. We don't wait for our church to be ready, we just run it. We say in six weeks' time, this is kicking off. In four weeks' time, in three weeks' time, this is kicking off and we run with it. And sometimes we started with five, sometimes we started with three, sometimes we start with 35, sometimes we start with 40. Don't wait for Christians to bring their friends to you. Run the event and teach Christians to bring their friends to it. So you put staff time into it, you put money into it, you do it all the time. The other thing we do is that we put it in the key points of our year. We still have two missions a year. We still start the year with a big mission and we still have a big one in the middle of the year but it's not really for evangelism to be honest. It's not our biggest punch. We invite people to, be, to come along and we do the big thing but really it's to show our people that we're all about evangelism and it's to help people to come and join life. We stick it at those key points in the year so that it feeds into everything else we do. The last one though, we need to stop talking about the number of people in the room and start talking about the number of people in the city. Whenever people ask me, how big is Hunter Bible Church? If I remember, my answer is, Newcastle's got 300,000 people. And I say, but you didn't understand me. How big is Hunter Bible Church? Newcastle's got 300,000 people, because that's the only number that really counts. Who cares how many people we've got in the room? It's how many people who aren't in the room that counts. And so we're praying that God will give us 30,000 in this generation and that's the number I want in people's head. The number of the lost. The number of people who could be bringing glory to Jesus. There are five things that I think bring evangelism into the heart of your ministry. Is Australia really like plowing concrete? It can look like it. The cynicism. I don't think Jesus sees concrete here. I don't think Jesus... I think what Jesus sees is a harvest. I think Jesus sees bodies just waiting to be raised, and Jesus is in the business of calling harvesters. Jesus is in the business of empowering people to raise the dead, not with ours but with His power. and what that means is that the resurrection makes me optimistic. The resurrection gets me praying. So we pray? With me? Our Father, we praise you because you raised the dead. You raised us. At one time, we too were dead in our transgressions and sins. And all too often we have daily reminders of what that death looked like. But we praise you that we are not dead people now. That you have raised us, that you have filled us with your spirit. And we long and look forward to the perfection that will be ours in heaven with new bodies, completely transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. But we thank you for change now. We thank you that you have made us new and that you have given us good works in which to walk for the rest of our lives. Father, we pray that we will have ministries that invite people to trust you, that invite people to change, to repent and to trust and to move on, to put sin behind them. Make us optimistic about change. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be optimistic about people coming into your kingdom. We know that you see a harvest, Lord Jesus. And we know that you send people into the harvest. And we know that you tell us you are with us until the very end of the age. And so please be with us. And please come with us. And please send us so that we will preach to the lost. For those of us who are feeling battered and bruised that we haven't seen fruit and we've lost some of our confidence please direct our hearts back to christ father help us to get out there and please give us the tremendous encouragement of seeing people saved of knowing we are your fellow workers amen